A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to another episode of Why Would You Tell Me That? Where me, De- Neil Delamere, and I, follows, I almost forgot my own name there, and uh, <laughs> Dave Moore, my co-host. Well, we go out and we troll the world. We forage in the forest of knowledge to try and bring you something back <laughs> wow. for the picnic of delight. And, <laughs> you know, I, I'd actually be worried if you had gone and written this down, but what I know is you're actually just completely <laughs> spitting off the top of your head, which actually makes it okay. <laughs> we are wandering through with picnic basket in hand with little red riding hood collar up trying to avoid the wolves of ignorance and the, the woodcutter's daughter of apathy <laughs> oh my god somebody please stop him immediately <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't heard the podcast before, this is what it is. One of us yeah. goes off, finds something interesting, and then finds an expert to back them up. Uh, and today, it's Dave Moore's turn. But before that... Oh, yeah. Oh, is there more Is there more fairy tale analogy? <laughs> <laughs> Why am I so giddy? Uh, before we do that, yeah. I have to pay you a compliment, because we've done three of these so far. That's rare. And you brought one expert for episode two, yeah. and we've had a huge response to it. And we've been sent. We've been sent messages. I know. Here's the thing. Like this is what's so exciting for us because we record this podcast as all podcasters do in a vacuum, and you just have the two of us talking to each other. We bring in a guest, and then we push it out to the world and see what happens. And there's been a huge response. We're very grateful for it, by the way. And if you want to respond to us about any of this, if you're listening to it and you're going, how do how do I respond, either positively or negatively, to Neil's fairy tale stories? And um, what you do is you get us on Instagram. Uh, we are at Why Would You Tell Me That, which is the podcast, but then obviously at Neil Delamar Comedy and at Dave Today FM. But yes, there have been messages flying in, and one of them has just made me very, very happy. Yes, and we got a message from somebody called Olive who was listening to the show because we were talking. Do you remember our linguist Daniel asked us what the Irish for 20 was? And we both mm. said fiha, and that is correct. But, and and he said, that, well, I've always thought that Irish was base 20, um, mm. and that appeared to kind of confirm his idea. But Olive left us this message. Hey, Dave and Neil, loving the podcast. Um, Just wanted to send a quick message in regards to what you were talking about with numbers. That guy you were speaking to, the linguist, asked you what 20 was in Irish and you said feha, which is correct, 100% correct. But a lot of native speakers that I would know would say score, 
a CO for the R is 20. So if you were 60 years of age, you'd be three score or often you'd hear, you know, three scores cahar would be 64 because you'd have three score. Um, it's quite common with native speakers. I teach in a Gaelic school. I might have a little Irish is good, but obviously when you're listening to a native speaker, it's a different league altogether. And native Irish speakers would commonly use go score. Kainisha Thoshe, Thoshe go score is three, which would be two scores, which would be two twenties plus three would be 43. Um, so just thought it was interesting that he's owned in on 20 because it is something that you would commonly hear native Irish speakers say. Obviously he said feha, which is also correct. Just thought you'd like to know. Add to your facts about numbers. Thanks, guys. Score, of course. How could we have forgotten score? And also, Gronya Shoige uh, said the exact same thing to me at an awards do. We were talking about, she goes, I'm a native speaker. We would say Kara score for 80. We say score. So it's definitely base 20. So I think that is definitely a fluence, fluency thing. I think FIHA is the official kind of number for 20. But if you are, you know, a native speaker, a fluent speaker of Irish, you would definitely throw score in where we would throw 20. And of course, score itself across English language means 20, 20 as well. Four score years and 10, whatever that quote is. Uh, Neil probably knows it from his fairy tales. But, um, uh, it's, but the, yeah. no, it's the Gettysburg Address, isn't it? Yeah, not a fairy tale, is it? That was real, right? It wasn't <laughs> Gettysburg Address of Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Yeah, yeah. Nothing's more real than being shot at a play, I would have thought. <laughs> Probably <laughs> pretty true. Pretty real. Um, but look, if you want to get in touch, like I said, anything on Instagram, maybe it is that you want to correct us on something or elaborate on something that we've covered, or maybe you just want to give us a topic to cover on why would you tell me that. We love all of this. Yes, we are genuinely chuffed to get stuff in from people because it does mean that it's not just you and me talking to each other across the screen and you wanting to throw stuff at me when I go down the fairy tale rabbit hole. <laughs> uh, but I've got one for, for this week, Neil, and it's got nothing to do with a suggestion from anyone. This all came from my own tiny mind. This week, we're going to talk about money. Oh, you, you got me. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk about the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, okay? And this was something I learned about when I went to Norway uh, on a little holiday. On the way over, I was like sitting on the plane. I knew very little. I was a fan of one of their comedy musical acts. I could speak a little bit of Norwegian. So I was of like, of course you could. <laughs> no, I mean a little bit, like two sentences, one of them which is unbroadcastable. Um, but anyway, I found out about the Norwegian Wealth Fund and I was like, why does nobody know about this? So I think what we're going to do today is I'm going to show you how good Norway would be if it won the lotto. And, and it effectively <laughs> did win the lottery. You know those people you see who spent their money on quad bikes and, you know, uh, houses they could no longer... Like, Norway is the opposite of that. Right, yeah. If you spend your money on a quad bike, you spend half your money on a quad bike if you win the lotto and half on the rehab after you've bought a quad bike. <laughs> yes, the absolutely lethal. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, that's always the way. So, okay, all I know about Norway and the Norwegian... I, I don't know anything about it. I'll be honest with you. Okay. I met a man in a pub once who told me Norway was rich and then I filed it under like 
stuff to look up in the morning. But it was five o'clock in the morning at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and I was knee deep in Blue Wicket. Like I had a drink, two drinks in each hand and both of them were on fire at this right, point. Right, okay, so. yeah. Well, I will tell you this, I will tell you this. I should explain, our expert is a lady called Kirsty Haugland, who is the chief economist with DNB in Norway. I've gone, I'm, I'm going top level here. Like, I was hoping it was, you remember Eric from the Statoil lads? That's who I hoped it was. <laughs> well, actually, Statoil will feature in this, in this conversation because I think, I don't know if, I certainly didn't notice at the time, Statoil was a brand of petrol stations around Ireland, but, and I knew they were owned by a Scandinavian somewhere. I assumed okay. they were some kind of, you know, private entity, ExxonMobil, BP, whatever. Stat, state, oil, oil. Everything we were buying in Statoil was going to the Norwegian coffers. Wow. Yeah. So basically, if you're, if you're ever at a, at a bank machine and you're behind Ali Gunnar Sonsker, just <laughs> ask for the money yeah. that you gave his government back. Well, this is the thing, right? We're going to be dealing in amounts of money that are going to be insurmountably difficult to comprehend, okay? So okay. I'm going to try and give you some scale here because I recently found out about this as an illustrative guide to big money. A million. We'd all love to be a millionaire, wouldn't we? Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes. There's a slight gap and then yes. So a million seconds, if you want to measure it in in that way, you can understand, you know, the differences here. A million seconds is 11 and a half days. So we're recording this on a Tuesday. Like Saturday week, that's a million seconds. Not that impressed by that, I'll be honest. No, yeah, but that's my point. A billion seconds is... 31 years from now. <laughs> okay. And we will at one point in this discussion talk a trillion, which is 31,866 <laughs> years from now. So it's just, it's so important to understand when you hear the difference between a million and a billion, it's not just throwing a letter here and there. There's a very specific reason that, apart from the fact that you're, you know, good-natured and not a criminal, that they'd never bring you in a bank job. Just the idea of you in the getaway car going, I don't think we have room for all that money. I need to know how much money they were robbing so I could, I could see how many notes in fivers that the Northern Bank robbery. Well, actually, I do my other... Oh, analogy, God! You know, it is. It's to do with size. If you stacked... A million euro in a hundred euro bills, or a million dollars in a hundred dollar bills, a million pounds, yeah. hundred pound bills, hundred pound notes, whatever. A million of them would be the yeah. height of your kitchen chair, the back of the chair, like three and a half, four feet nearly, like a stack of money as tall as that. Okay. A billion in the same currency. I'm getting excited now. Is taller than the Burj Khalifa, <laughs> the tallest building in, in the world. Yeah, it's taller than that. You know what I got to ask you. Yeah, go on. You can't tease me with a million and then a billion. And oh, you're good. And the worst thing is, I can see by your face, you already know the answer. Of course what's, I do. A, what's a trillion in similar denomination notes? Have you ever seen the ISS fly overhead at night? The, the space station? The space station, yeah. I have, yeah. That is 246 kilometers above Earth. Okay. A trillion stack of notes would be 1,015 kilometers tall, which is four times the distance between us and the ISS. Can you comprehend this level of number? It's, it's, it's mind-blowing, genuine. It also says to me that, you know, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are continually in competition about their own space programs. Yeah. Right? If they were to just 
withdraw from a bank machine their money in cash and pile it up. They could yeah. climb on it to space and there's yeah. no need for this nonsense ego stuff. Cash ladder. That's what we need uh, is a cash ladder. No, that's a terrible RTE game show from the 1980s. <laughs> that's what that sounds like. Next up on cash ladder, do you want to will a small microwave that you cannot use if you have a pacemaker or any electrical equipment in the house? Now I want to tell you about a place called Nauru. Been there? Ah, no, I have not. All right, let me tell you about Nauru. It is it is northeast of Australia in the South Pacific. It's a very small place, 21 square kilometers. It's really very it's okay, very tiny. close to the equator. 30 degrees all year long, and it's an absolutely beautiful paradise. Or at least it was until somebody found that it had uh, huge amounts of phosphate on it. Now, I don't know if you know anything about phosphate. I didn't until I was learning about Nauru. But phosphate is used in fertilizer. So companies came in and they harvested the phosphate out of uh, uh, Nauru's natural resource. And when we talk about Norway in a few minutes with our experts, what's interesting is finding abundant natural resources is in almost every case really bad for the country who finds them. We all have this fantasy of going, I wish my country had all these oil reserves or phosphate or diamonds. It's really bad for almost everybody except Norway. And we'll get onto that. But Nauru found this this phosphate or fertilizer. Their GDP in Nauru, tiny country, was the highest in the world in the 1970s. Up, almost Estimated up to $50,000 GDP per capita. $50,000 in the 1970s? In the 1970s. Massive money. The island's government went on a spending spree. They bought jets. They bought ships. They built massive hotels, golf courses on this tiny island. It was They were buying stuff in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, the population, there were 7,000 people there. They all got involved. They bought houses, massive mansions, supercars driving down the roads in Nauru. And then somebody started to realize that, hang on, the phosphate stuff is running out. So the government decided we're going to be smart here and we're going to invest the money that we have lying around. They took a billion dollars and they started to invest in things around the world, including something called Leonardo the Musical, which is widely regarded as the biggest disaster in London theatre. They invested in that. It's a musical about Leonardo da Vinci, which you can imagine is not great, to be honest. Um, (laughs) The mining industry finished in the 80s and literally Nauru was drowning in debt. Now, when I say now, their GDP per capita has dropped to $8,000. From 50. From 50. Their poverty is widespread. The country is in serious trouble. 80% of the island itself is now uninhabitable because of the mining that went on. So there's not much plant life. There's very few natural mammals there. There's a couple of imported rats and cats and dogs. And then on top of that, something I learned about uh, Pacific Island nations is that their uh, BMIs are the highest in the world and Nauru is number one. 94.5% of its population is classed as obese. Now, there are counter arguments that maybe the Caucasian body is different than the Polynesian body and maybe our measurements that we're applying to them don't. Have, but it does also have the highest level of type 2 diabetes in the world. And it's just the, the country is on its knees. The only thing keeping it afloat is an Australian run detention center on the island. And the government, the Australian government wants to close that every 
time it's just stopped because it's the only thing that keeps the island from absolute desolation okay all right like there's so much to unpick on that i think it certainly jumps into why would you tell me that that's the most <laughs> interested i've ever been in anything you've ever said to be perfectly wow. honest with you i, <laughs> I mean it. come on this is this is a great why would you tell me that sort of stuff yeah okay so let me see so fifty thousand dollars just just put put that in perspective as you were speaking there I was jotting down my father told me he paid for our house with the site and built a house in the in the late 60s yeah for three three thousand pounds i think it was three thousand irish right pounds. so your average person in nauru is earning 50 grand yeah a couple of years later yeah now. so it's phenomenal um it's interesting that if you discover oil or gas or diamonds i'm thinking of the congo and those places that are very rich in those in 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 minerals and in commodities it's actually really bad for you because i always thought that if we in ireland discovered oil we would absolutely lose the run of ourselves. Oh, I think totally. we'd be clean washing our cars with diesel. I would be. I'd say we'd be using petroleum jelly to be lads sliding from Dublin to Limerick in twenty five minutes because they've just coated <laughs> the, the M seven motorway. <laughs> well, in Vaseline, we have the proof in the Celtic Tiger. All we did was put decking on our decking and moved it around to the other side of the decking and then bought two beds in Bratislava. Like, we cannot be trusted. No, no. Yeah, so, and, this, and the same thing seems to have happened in, in, the, in, in a small island. The history is littered with tales of nations finding these natural resources and then everything going to pot. And I'll be honest with you, Norway is not free of that. It happened a couple of times, but there was, a, there was something that happened in Norway in the early 90s that changed this. And it's why it's so interesting and why we want to talk to Kirsty Hogland, our DNB's chief economist, who's going to join us in a couple of minutes here on Why Would You Tell Me That? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. 
Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Okay, welcome back to part two of Why Would You Tell Me That? And the main topic we're talking about today is the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund. And to help us understand it, its history, its checkered history, and why it is now so successful, we're joined by DNB's chief economist, Kirsty Hogland. Kirsty, hi. Hi. How nice to be here. And so nice for you to join us and uh, inform us a bit about this. Uh, I was telling Neil in the first part about a couple of things. I was telling him about Nauru, which is an island in the Pacific, which uh, at one point had the highest GDP per capita in the world and now, unfortunately, no longer does. But it it just it was all to lead up to this discussion we're going to have about the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund. Because what intrigues me about this is the numbers are so so enormous and unfathomable its value today is just incredible but also the fact that norway has had maybe two or three goes at trying to make this norwegian sovereign wealth fund a success and has finally managed to do it and is now the poster boy for you know every country that manages to find itself a natural resource so maybe take myself and neil back to the beginning the 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 history of where the money came from and and where the whole thing began well it was actually in uh, 1966 that we started looking for oil and gas resources on the Norwegian continental shelf. So that's when the fairy tale started. And in 1969, Philips actually found uh, the Ecofisk, which turned out to be one of the largest oil fields in the world, actually among the 10 largest. And then uh, it mm. all started. This search was successful and it was very important back then that the politicians uh, immediately did some important things to secure that a big share, a big chunk of the revenues would go to the state, so to the Norwegian people. So they declared sovereignty over the continental shelf and said that it's only us, the government, that can actually give permissions uh, for companies to uh, search and to extract resources from the bottom of the North Sea and also other parts of our shelf uh, afterwards. So uh, that was important. They were kind of early by setting up this tax regime. And of course, in the beginning, there were no Norwegian producers. We didn't have any expertise. So we were heavily Mm. reliant upon other countries' uh, expertise in everything that had to do with searching for and extracting oil and gas resources. But uh, also the politicians were clever to... Uh, put in some uh, demands for these companies to actually invest in uh, developing also the Norwegian expertise on this field. And eventually, we also got up and going and uh, we had uh, some significant big actors, also uh, Norwegian actors on the Norwegian shelf. So big oil companies like Statoil, for instance, that was fully state-owned before, yeah. at least, which now turned into Equinor. For many years, Statoil was present here where Neil and I live in Ireland. And we just always assumed, you know, like BP or Exxon or Maxol or Texaco, it was just, you know, some private company somewhere opened up the petrol stations. Hmm. And I was only today when I explained to Neil that Statoil was the state 
of Norway uh, that, you know, we were, we were, f- you know, paying for our petrol and bread and milk and eggs and giving it to you guys. Absolutely, you did. So thank you very much for that. (laughs) So this all started in 1966. And as all Irish people know, that's the only thing that ever happened in 1966. Nothing else worth talking about in any way, shape or form. Scottish people agree. Um, And so did the Welsh. So if it started in 1966 and you discovered oil and did quite well with it, Dave suggested that it didn't quite go swimmingly in terms of the investment and what happened to the investment at the start. So what happened? You know, uh, in the beginning, we had to borrow money to actually invest in all the stuff that we needed to get uh, this industry up and running. And we were also heavily reliant on foreigners, as, as I just said. So we were kind of borrowing money on the expected future oil income, which is a very logical thing and, and a rational thing to do. So that's not a problem. But also this um, perception in the general public and among politicians that oil revenues were going to become very big was also an important driver of very expensive uh, welfare arrangements taking place, a lot of public spending, to put it short. Uh, we spent a lot of money mm. on very expensive arrangements also to boost agricultural incomes etc and in the 70s it led to what we call uh, wage and price um, spirals that we had a very unhealthy increase in wages that also increased inflation etc we saw that a lot of places but in norway it was particularly boosted by this uh, perception that we were really becoming rich and we can afford to use a lot of money over government budgets and eventually in about 1977 the year where I was born, actually, they found out that this had really gone too far. We have become uncompetitive mm. uh, because uh, we have our wage level had become far too high. And uh, that was the start of uh, restrictions again, they, more austerity coming into place in fiscal policy. And uh, then uh, things turned down again. I know the oil crisis in Iran in the 80s flipped that again because it meant oil prices rose so high that the Norwegian government was like, okay, well, hang on, we're rich again. So until the oil crisis in 86, when everything fell and the like, Norway's economy was was hit again by the lack of resilience, I suppose, that the house pricing fell, unemployment rose, there was a banking crisis. So there seemed to be kind of a double cycle in the, as you said, the 70s and the 80s, where as much wealth as there was mm. in terms of the oil deposits, it just, it was, un, the country was unable to to withstand these kind of external forces. I think that uh, you're right in one sense because it kind of exacerbated those uh, developments that were happening not only in Norway but also in other countries because it's also very important that in the 80s you had the yuppie period and that was all about you know deregulation happening very quickly and it led to uh, a bonanza uh, in lending etc which had not that much to do with actually our oil uh, fortune but I'm pretty sure it uh, served to exacerbate the development mm. that happened. But at some points, as you said, uh, the oil price plunged and uh, also suddenly we had a negative foreign balance. The, our, the value of our imports were suddenly higher than the value of our exports. And that was kind of coming out of the blue because of this oil price shock. So it kind of pol- probably made politicians uh, think that this was not the way to go forward. 
So if it's one of the largest sovereign wealth funds in the world now, who, who controls it and who controls what it is invested in? It's the politicians that uh, are in charge of that. So you have uh, the oil fund in its administration is it's located actually in the central bank of Norway. The fund operates independently, but the guidelines for its investment, how much stock it should have, how much uh, bonds it should have, is a political decision. So it's set by the Ministry of Finance. So uh, one, one of the most interesting things that, that I heard, and Kirsty, you can, you can confirm or deny this, is actually not what Norway invests in, in in terms of the decisions those people make, but the things that they Norway will not invest in, which I find fascinating. So, for example, some sneakers. weapons manufacturing <laughs> sneakers, yeah, <laughs> some weapons manufacturing, uh, they're opposed to any kind of nuclear weapons, uh, chemical weapons, tobacco. There's no tobacco in the Norwegian wealth fund in, uh, investments, and also it won't invest in Norway which I think is incredible because what it does is it actually cushions Norway from any internal fluctuations so that everything is external in terms of the investment. I know, and this is some of the beauty behind it all because actually it's several purposes why we chose to do it like this. One is that we don't want an economy that fluctuates and has very strong ups and downs because of... um, uh, ups and downs in the oil income and increases and decreases in the prices. So we have to kind of smooth the development and also that uh, the oil fund is going to preserve the value of uh, the, the the wealth that has now really only been relocated from the bottom of the sea to the financial markets mm. and to be kind of have a good risk diversion, you put it all abroad. And also, that's also the reason why the parliament have decided that the foil is not actually supposed now to invest in oil companies. Yes. Uh, because we are reliant on oil ups and downs in the Norwegian economy. We don't want to be further exposed to those ups and downs. We want to diminish it, so then we don't invest in oil companies. I've got two questions there. Uh, is the decision not to invest money from oil in other oil companies is it uh, not a green decision but a decision based mainly on finance that's the first question and secondly when the norwegian sovereign wealth fund which is so big decides to announce that it's not going to invest in this what happens how influential is it to the latter if i'm going to start there i don't think it has had such a big impact I'm sure the market uh, initial market reaction was negative, but then I think it drowned in other kind of considerations. Uh, we are, of course, a very big sovereign wealth fund, but uh, oil companies is only a part was only a part of the investment universe. But when it comes to the first thing, it's not a green decision. It's not uh, because we want uh, the carbon-based economy to become smaller, etc. That would be kind of hypocritical then, because then we should actually uh, stop producing oil ourselves. No, it's purely a financial decision made to reduce risks, hedging, like we call it in the financial economy. Kind of, we want to do what we can to reduce that the the risk of that. Having said all that, uh, Norway is widely regarded as one of the greenest nations uh, on earth, and I know, for example, that it it buys in rubbish from other countries because it it doesn't have enough rubbish to to turn into into green energy because it, it so it needs to buy it from abroad but there is a kind of um 
a paradox, I suppose you'd say, in that uh, being the greenest country around, that the money that has allowed Norway, for example, there's another amazing stat that Norway has the highest number of electric cars. And the reason is that the incentives are so great from the Norwegian government, like a 50% tax rebate or whatever, no VRT, driving in bus lanes, free parking, all this kind of stuff. And again, of course, having the green energy at home to charge the car, that the money that the government has is able to put into these projects to make the nation green comes from fossil fuels. So there is a paradox there. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, Norway can't really say that, well, look at this very successful electrical car uh, policy that we have been doing. We have like a large majority of cars being sold being electric cars, car, cars, and every other country should do the same because it's really such an expensive policy. So it is really being covered by oil money, like you said. Mm. So, but it's actually also a paradox that the spending of electricity in Norway is uh, really coming from green resources. And it is this way because we do have a lot of waterfalls, etc. So that's where almost everything comes from. What is the current value of the fund, roughly speaking? Well, roughly speaking, we currently are at 10,000 billion Norwegian kroners. In for the for the the dollar value one trillion one trillion yeah, euro one trillion. So Neil, remember in the first start, we, first thing we spoke <laughs> about the height of the money, the Norwegian Space Agency. Yeah, I was I was giving Neil some concrete examples between the difference between a million, a billion, and a trillion. And one of them was if you stacked, you know, hundred euro notes up, a million is the height of your kitchen chair. A billion is the height of the Burj Al Khalifa and a trillion is four times the distance between here and the International Space Station into space. Like it's just a trillion is such a big wow. number. It is a really big number. So uh, it is really a massive amount of money. And it's also important to note that we have the oil fund, but I don't know if you've talked about that we also have what we call the fiscal rule. No, tell us about that. The fiscal rule is really like the twin brother of the fund because it is a rule that Norwegian politicians, almost all Norwegian politicians, have committed to. And uh, here is the point that in a normal year where there is no very strong economy or very weak economy, you are allowed to spend money out of the fund, definitely, but you're only allowed to use 3% of the mm. fund's value. And why 3%? Well, that's because that is calculated to be the expected real annual return of the fund. So you're not really spending money from the fund. You're only re- using its returns. So then the main idea here is that the fund itself is going to be untouched and uh, it's going to be there for our generation, but also for future generations. So it's uh, going to remain there for all eternity in principle. Yeah. And it remains to be seen if that actually is going to be the case. But so far, it's definitely been uh, complied with. One of the things I found fascinating as well is that Norway is a very expensive country, very high taxation. I know certainly when I was there, and Neil will will understand this, (laughs) I went into the equivalent of a spa and I bought a bottle of water, a glass bottle of Coke, because I love a glass bottle of Coke when you can buy it, uh, two bananas and a Mars bar. And Neil... It was 27 euro. 
27 euro now yeah. can you can you guarantee that they charge everybody that much <laughs> yeah it wasn't it wasn't just a silly tourist that's the irish fee stroke dave Moore. <laughs> look at his runners they look really expensive <laughs> yeah okay, that, the glass cool. bottles of coke 27 quid okay that's a lot of money but here's the thing right so the, we, along with those high prices uh, along with the high taxation comes a, a very high standard of living and also there are measures of the income equality of countries and i know norway does very well in income equality so that the top you know 25 percent don't earn a hugely different amount than the bottom 25 percent and in terms of overall happiness and all those things norway scores really high so uh, yeah we could look at it and say a trillion dollar sovereign wealth fund five million population everybody has two hundred thousand dollars well they don't really you don't liquidate the fund and give it to the people but the investments that are made and the smart way it's been managed since the 90s simply means that the wealth seems to be an amplifier for what was there before that was already well-managed and well-governed country. Yes, there were some mistakes, but but it was a, it was a well-functioning Western economy. It was close to Sweden in terms of the quality of life and incomes and all those kind of things. So that when the wealth came, you, you haven't allowed that wealth to destabilize the country, which, as I was saying to Neil in the first part, natural resources, by and large, are a curse for the countries, but it seems to amplify what's already going on in the country. I think this is a great way of putting it. Uh, I agree, and it's also very beneficial for us Norwegians to say so, but uh, we have managed to keep the money reasonably well-managed in the fund, so it's also prudent in that way and not spending too much money because we could have gone bananas <laughs> and thrown away everything that we had when it also comes to competitiveness. And uh, like you said, we have been able to keep tax rates quite high not among the highest in uh, the world but still still high but it's redistributed so i think in times like these uh, after several years several decades with actually growing inequalities not at least in the us and the uk you've seen that it has consequences and it leads to social unrest and some political turns that you don't see in countries that have experienced a smaller increase in inequality so i think it it's like the trust in the Norwegian population, also to the authorities and also to yeah. other people mm. is very high. It's basically a mature society with all the organizations and the government organizations working very well. So it's the difference between Brendan Gleeson and Macaulay Culkin. Macaulay Culkin becomes famous really young and doesn't know what to do with it. And Brendan Gleeson becomes famous and successful slightly older and manages it exceptionally well because all his infrastructure is in place. And if that's not on the front of your next book, Kirsty, I'll be very upset. I'm going to put in it first up in a in a report tomorrow morning. Excellent. Definitely. For for yeah. DNB Bank. Yeah, I'm sure they'll love Absolutely. that already. Right. Yeah. Uh, Kirsty Hogland, Tax Galdoha for taking part in this today. We are so grateful. Thank you so much. Tusen tack. Welcome back to part three. We, I feel that we have traversed the jungles of education oh, and God. become Tarzans. <laughs> Of knowledge. <laughs> you're, you're not even sticking to the general fairy tale uh, landscape now. You're moving into the Americanized uh, Walt Disney world of, uh, of fairy tales. <laughs> I have become the professor of Baloo studies. And Dave... <laughs> 
has sheer canned his way oh, all God. the way to why would you tell me that royalty level? Um, <laughs> Kirsty was brilliant. Kirsty, like to to talk to somebody who is so uh, so ingrained in the system that is so successful at managing this money, but also to do that in her at least second language, if not, who knows, third language, whatever, to be able to talk so fluently about that in another language is always amazing to me. And so, yeah, Kirsty really blew my mind. Dave, why would you tell me about the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund? Well, you know, you may think it's because perhaps if you were to have a windfall, you know, be it the success of this podcast's new fairy tale merchandise line. Um, <laughs> if, it, if that were to net you hundreds of millions, or maybe perhaps you just won the, the lottery. I don't know. Maybe you think that it's that, that, that's why I would bring it to you. But really, I wanted to bring you the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund because I wanted to tell you that a trillion euros stacked up uh, one note on top of the other is four times higher than the ISS. That's all I ever want to do is just draw these kind of analogies. Hey, man, did you know that's 11 football fields long? People hate them and I love them. You love them. That's the size of an area, area the size of Wales. It's always Wales, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Do you know when you were spouting that nonsense and I was looking for other stuff to talk about going into Hansel and Gretel world? Yeah, um, yeah. I started to look up what you said to me off air, which is that Nor- the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund owns loads of uh, shares all over the world. Yes. You can look specifically country by country. I am now oh. looking at the 14 companies on the Irish Stock Exchange that Norway has a little piece of. Oh, no. do we know any of them? Oh, yeah. Uh, Ryanair. Oh, of 73,592,937 Norwegian kroners worth. People will have heard of Ryanair. They will have heard of Ryanair. Um, they have Kerry Group. Oh, who's taking the horse to Oslo? That'll be the next ad. <sighs> the butter. The butter's gone to Oslo, lads. Uh, FBD Holdings. If you're getting your car insurance. <laughs> Maybe less impressive and internationally known as Ryanair and Kerry Gold, but okay. What's this herring levy? <laughs> <laughs> The Norwegians know what they're doing financially. We could take a leaf or two out of their books um, and perhaps run our own country a little bit better. But yeah, look, it, it's I just think it's amazing that for all the nations around the world who fare so badly upon finding natural resources, and Norway, in fairness to them, had a couple of those episodes, but that they turned it round and have turned, as we so eloquently told by Kirsty, have turned 200 million euro into a trillion euro. Is yeah. just utterly mind blowing. The the grown ups got the money and kept the money and are growing the money and yeah. haven't done what we would do and bought a jet ski that fires hurls out of the side <laughs> of it for no apparent reason. <laughs> What's the crack with the gold jet ski? I mean, it's sinking. I know, but it looks <laughs> deadly. It's, um, pow- it's powered entirely by fairy tales. I don't know why. It's <laughs> Fairy tales and turf. This is absolutely <laughs> bad. Oh, you can't burn turf anymore. That's what that is. Yeah. They, they feel like they're grown ups and we have a lot to learn from them. Kirsty was amazing. And you've put it up to me as always for next week. I, I do. I enjoy when I know you're impressed by my guest. That that makes me very happy. So I have a feeling that Kirsty would be that kind of person for you. But here's the thing. Maybe you want to suggest something to us uh, that we could cover on Why Would You Tell Me That? You can get us on Instagram at Why Would You Tell Me That? That's for the podcast itself. Neil is at Neil Delamere Comedy and I am at Dave Today FM. So please get in touch. Let us know what you think about the episodes, what you what one you're enjoying the most. Uh, if you think there's anything that we've gotten wrong, which is in 
entirely possible uh, because as researchers we are sometimes you know things can slip through the cracks yeah, this is true. And uh, if you want to go to uh, a live show, I am neildelamere.com forward slash gigs and a big black dog has just joined me if you can't see the big black dog. Look, that's my brother's dog, which ironically looks like it's come out of a fairy tale. So it all comes full circle. Although you've pointed your camera down, which uh, although I can slightly see an edge of the dog's nose, I am mostly looking into your crotch. So I think <laughs> we'll leave. Why would you tell me that there? So that I can see better things on my computer screen. Wait till I put my trousers back on, Dave. <laughs> Neiltelemare.com forward slash crotch is a website oh, you no, do not want to visit. No, that's my only fans. <laughs> don't, don't go there. And go to my website for gigs, including the SSC Arena in Belfast. Okay, Neil Delamere, you got to tell me now. Give me a little hint, a little, ooh, a little morsel along the Hansel and Gretel breadcrumb trail to next week. Um, I'm going to follow the breadcrumbs. What am I going to get when I reach the witch's cottage? Ooh, I have been busy making a gingerbread house full of facts. And <laughs> in that house, behind the candy cane, is a brilliant story that I'd never heard of growing up. It's about the time Scotland tried to get a colony in Panama. Scotland? Scotland. That well-known colonial power, Scotland. <laughs> This definitely sounds like a fairy tale. (laughs) Okay, well, we'll have to find out next week on Why Would You Tell Me That? Thank you very much. In manufacturing, you need to automate intelligently to compete effectively. But not all automation solutions are created equally. AGVs and AMRs driven by Bluebotics Ant technology offer robust, accurate performance and native interoperability. Because your material handling can be smarter. Visit antdriven.com. That's antdriven.com to learn more.